And how about, how's everybody this morning? Am I supposed to use this? Or? <laughs> Let me find a place to lay it here. Can't hear me? Yeah. So <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody this morning. Getting ready for a big Halloween night. All the trick-or-treaters are going to come out and enjoy the time and take all your candy so you won't have to eat it and all that good stuff. So anyway, this morning I want you to turn with me to Psalms chapter 63. I don't know why, but this message, I guess, has been on my heart for some time. It just, but I came across this passage, of course, I've read this before many times, but it just all of a sudden just hit home recently. Psalms chapter 63, we're going to read the entire chapter, but it's not very long, it's only 11 verses. But listen to what David's saying. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of background here before we read this. As we read this story, we find that David is in a barren, desolate desert, the wilderness, the Bible says. He was literally running for his life. We're not exactly sure who was pursuing him. Perhaps it was David in David's early years when King Saul was trying to snuff him out. The young singer shepherd had risen to prominence, and King Saul, in his green-eyed jealousy and envy, plotted to kill, kill David. So that may have been why he's running. We're not told why he's running, but nonetheless, he's out in the desert. The second possibility is that he was fleeing from his own seditious son, Absalom. You'll recall that Absalom returned to Jerusalem. He instigated a coup in the government, a rebellion, a revolution, and led the very people who had cheered David as the king to rebel against him. So whatever happened, we're not exactly sure other than David is at a place in his life where he is very discouraged. Have you ever been there? I think we've all been there, and we probably will all go there again before it's over with. But this is the context of this passage, this uh, chapter. If you would, stand with me as we read Psalms chapter 63 and listen to David's heart. Now, remember, he's out in the wilderness. He's not in a church building. He's not in any kind of assembly. He's out by himself in the wilderness, in the desert, and we find him pouring his heart out to God. Listen to what he says. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall, shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, because you have seen my have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. My right hand upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would be with these words that we've just read and open our hearts and our minds to, that we can grasp what Dave is really saying and the situation he's saying it in. And Lord, that each one of us probably have been there are there right now, or will be going there at some point in the future. Lord, we all get discouraged. We all get down and out. And, Lord, let us turn to David and see what he did to restore that excitement, that joy in his life, to rebuild his relationship with you in essence. Go with us over these next few moments. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we read this story again, we find David in a barren, desolate desert. He was literally, again, running for his life. We don't know who was after him. He didn't tell us, but we can make some assumptions on it. The second possibility is that he was also fleeing from his son Absalom in his younger years. Again, Absalom, his own son, formed a coup to take David out of the kingdom, his dad out of the kingdom, to destroy him, to bring him down. And so I think it goes without saying anything else that David was probably quite discouraged at this time in his life. Everything that he had had turned against him. Everything that he had hoped in. I mean, he was the king. He's still the king for that matter. It's just they've run him out of the country, basically. And here he is, the, the king of the nation, and he's out in the middle of the desert with nowhere to go, nobody to talk to. But the thing that he, if you noticed what he does that really made sense that we all need to look at and grasp from is when he's at his lowest, he didn't start getting on Facebook and sending a message about how discouraged he was and he needed somebody to come home and talk to him. He got on his knees before God. And he started remembering some certain things that made a difference in his life. Let's look at those in just a moment. He was stripped of physical and human resources that could make him significant again and make him important again, he was down and out. And probably everybody in this room has, is, or will be in this situation some point in your life. Now, maybe not like David. Maybe you're not going to wind up in the desert somewhere. But that was, I'm not even sure that that was literal, but yet it was David's desert. Keep that in mind. This was his desert. He was out there by himself. And there's certain things that he did that we can see. When you're in a situation where everything you depend on from a human standpoint has been snatched away from you, we have only one place to go. I'm sure you're going to say that, I think I was going to say, go to God. Well, yes, we will. Yes, that is right. But first of all, he had to go inside. He had to look inside of himself. He had to look good at him, evaluate himself. What's going on? What's taking place here? What's happened in my life? And watch what he does, though. This is tremendous. I think it's a lesson that every one of us can take home. And you may not use it today, but I'll promise you, you'll use it sometime in your life. Because it happens to every one of us. A friend hurts our feelings. Somebody says something against us. We get mad at somebody in church. Whatever it is, it's going to happen sooner or later. And we get discouraged. We get down and out. And when we're down and out, if we're not careful, one of two things can happen. Either Satan moves in and takes advantage of it, or God moves in and takes advantage of it. But the choice is ours. And a lot of times, even church people open the door 
for something bad to come in our lives because we're so discouraged. We're down and out. We're, we're just fed up with everything. We're just tired of things. I want to carry you this morning to the desert that's called Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. Now you say, what? how's that a desert? Well, let me show you. Because even inside of a church, you can be discouraged and down and out. Just because you come to church does not mean you're not going to be discouraged. You're not going to be down and out. But let me tell you about this church. It has one of the most outstanding opportunities facing any church anywhere. Did you hear what I said? Robertson Avenue Baptist Church, oh, by the way, that's us, has one of the most exciting futures in front of us of any church there could be. I watched some of you look around at these empty chairs and say, you sure you got the right church in mind? Absolutely. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is in charge of this church. And it doesn't matter what we think, God can turn this church around. I know we're down. I know we have a lot of folks gone. I understand that. And by the way, it's discouraging to me too sometimes. It's filled with tremendous people, though, those who are willing to sacrifice to persevere, to share, to witness, to love, to care, but a people who are mentally and spiritually fatigued in this desert called Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. You say, this is sort of discouraging, isn't it? No. Let's just be honest. We're tired, folks. I get tired. You get tired. We try to do the struggle of church work. One thing I've noticed the more you struggle to do God's work in the flesh, the less you accomplish. You can't do it. In fact, it's impossible for you to do. There is nothing you can do personally to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. You can't do it. It has to come through the power of Jesus Christ in each one of our lives. Watch this as we go through this a little bit farther. Sometimes the work of God can get us so fatigued. We get tired. I'm tired. If we're not careful, we can be, get a weariness of spirit and of soul. In the midst of all this, somehow we found ourselves in the desert. And it can be within the walls of this church. We can still be in the desert if we're not careful. Many of us have lost some of our spiritual fervor, our excitement, our compassion. We find ourselves in a desert situation, not meaning we're out in the middle of nowhere, but we're inside the church and we feel all alone. We feel discouraged. We feel down and out sometimes. And that happens to every one of us sooner or later, and some more times than one. It wasn't our intention to be in the desert. It never is. But we find ourselves going more and more for God and doing more and more for Him and spending less and less time with Him. And that's one of the key factors right there. When you get down and out, check your spiritual life to see how much time you've been spending with God. Don't just talk about coming to worship service and Whoa, the worship just doesn't have what it used to have. I just can't get anything out of it anymore. 
turn inside like David does in a few moments and look at yourself. Am I doing all that I can do to make a worship experience in my life? Did you know we cannot make you worship? We could sing every song. We could sing your favorite songs. We could sing the old ones. We could sing the new ones. We could sing the ones we don't like. We could sing the ones we like. That does not make you worship. What makes you worship is when you begin to look at yourself and say, wait a minute, something's missing in my life, and you've got to deal with it. And that's exactly what David's doing here as he talks to us. It wasn't our intention to be out in the desert. It never is. But we find ourselves going more and more for God and less and less with God. We want to do it in our own strength. And, folks, we can't do it. It just is not possible. There is nothing we can do. All output and no input makes a desert in your life. It doesn't have to be some distant place. It doesn't mean go out of town 20 miles and just sit out in the middle of a pasture with nothing out there other than rocks and rattlesnakes. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about in your life, are you in a desert? Is that where you're at this morning? That you're just dry, you're thirsty for something of God. And worship just doesn't seem to do it for you anymore. It's not the worship people. It begins in us. What have I lost? Why have I lost the enthusiasm? Why have I lost the fervor I used to have? Why don't I have the excitement I used to have? That's exactly where David found himself. And David says he began to look inside. What have I left off? And we'll see in just a moment four things that David says are so important for him to realize where he was and who he was and what he needs to do. All output and no input makes a desert. Pouring out our energy to do things, to accomplish things, we're doing more and more and enjoying it less and less. That may describe some of us today. You can look around at these, this building this morning, and there's a lot of empty seats here. This is real because some people that probably sitting right here Within the next month, uh, two months, six months, a year perhaps, may be a dropout. I heard a little story. In fact, Robert put it on Facebook. I'm going to repeat. I've heard something similar to it. I'm going to share it with you. This pastor visited this man that had been out of church for several weeks. It was in the cold winter, and it was a cold that morning. He knocked on the door, and, of course, the man opened the door and knew what he was there for. He welcomed him in. He says, let's just sit in and hear him talk right in front of the fireplace and so forth. And they're sitting there. And... But the preacher didn't say a word. Of course, they had their greetings and but as they sit there, they just watched the fire. Finally, after a little bit, the preacher reached over and got those fire tongs and picked it up and took a big old chunk of coal off there and just sort of set it on the side. And they just both sit there and watched that glowing ember as it slowly began to fade and lost its glow. Then he reached down, took those tongs, and put it back on the fire, and almost immediately that heat got back in it, and it began to glow again. The preacher said, well, I've stayed here long enough. It's time for me to leave. And the man that had been sitting there watching the whole thing, never a word said, said, preacher, that was a good sermon. I'll be there next Sunday. Do you get it? 
sometimes we take ourselves out of the middle of fire and wonder why our enthusiasm has gone out. We don't do the things we used to. I understand about getting older. Hey, I'm getting there one of these days too. I mean, we all get there eventually. But yet, there's still things that you can do. There's still a part that you can play. There's still kids that you can talk to and make an impression upon them. There's still things that we can do as a church to revitalize that. But let's watch and see what David did. Look around and see the dropouts we've got. You could name them far better than I could because I didn't know a lot of them. But they've dropped out. They used to be active members here. Maybe three or four years ago they were active. And where are they? Now, I know in this area a lot of them move off and get transferred out of the military. I understand all that. But yet a lot of them haven't moved off. They've just dropped out. They become like that ember that just the glow went out. They've lost it. They don't have it this morning. This morning, on one of the news channels I watch, I won't tell you what it was because it'd give away a lot, but anyway, it just uh, I watch it every day. Uh, the initials of it are Fox News. But, <clears throat> but anyway, it, uh, I was watching this morning this, this preacher come on, and he was talking about that there was a, a survey done just recently and 28% of younger adults now call themselves atheists or agnostics, have no interest in God. And he made a comment that just really hit home and sort of what we're talking about today. This, you know, this is, I don't even know his name, don't know where he was from, anything else. Sounded like a good old Baptist, but I don't know if he was or not. But he made the comment, says, they was asking, well, wh- why is it that young people don't go to church anymore? And he said, well, most of them go to church and there's nothing for them. They don't get anything out of it. There's nothing to take outside the building with them. And I thought, you know, that's a true statement a lot of times. That's a lot of truth in it. Why our young people are finding it not necessary to go to church? Why our young people are saying, I don't want anything to do with anymore. It's just, it's dead. I don't want to go in a place that's dead. Now, is that talking about the music? Could be part of it. Is that talking about the preacher? Oh, no, absolutely not. But No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, a lot of times it is. Our Sunday school teachers think the way we do church. What can we do to reach out to these teenagers and young people and draw them in? But yet, when they're here, give them something that they leave with. And they begin to think it. 28% of younger people, I believe it's 21 years and below. I, I think that's it. That may not be exactly right. But said they have no belief in God anymore. They've just lost. And some of them were raised in churches. Have no belief whatsoever in God. They're either agnostic or have turned atheist. There is no God. Because they don't see it lived out. And you know what else this pastor said? He said a lot of times they go to churches and they'll see men and women in their communities that they know they don't live the Christian life, and they say, why do I need this? That's a shame. But we wonder why, what's going on with our churches today. Folks, we need to look internally. Maybe we're not setting the example. Maybe we're not doing something right here. Look around and see how many. You could probably name ten times more than I could. As we look across the congregation, we see empty places where several years ago there were vibrant people sitting there, perhaps, who are now gone. Most of them didn't go to another church, statistics tell us. 
they merely dropped out because a lot of it was fatigue. Nothing is more wearying. Nothing is more fatiguing. Nothing is more tiresome than trying to do the work of God in the energy of ourselves. It can't happen. It's got to be God guiding us through it. In those circumstances, you'll always find yourself in a desert. So, how do we restore that spiritual passion? How do we recapture that ecstasy, that excitement that used to be in our lives for God? Probably some of you at one time, I'm sure you all had a visitation program And you were probably involved in that, and you were going out and knocking on doors, and it was exciting to get to witness to somebody and share with Christ with somebody. And I don't know the situation, but I know I've heard about uh, Operation Copper, what what is it, Cove, Cove Mission, Mission Cove, that's what it is. And by the way, in case you don't know, we're going to try to do that again next July or August, and we're already getting built up for it. It's where we will go out in our community and begin to try to tell people about Jesus and other activities that they can be drawn to and music and all things that they can do. We're looking forward to doing that. That's on our plans right now, doing that this next summer of 2018. And we're already beginning to make the plans, even though it's early right now. But we've got to do something to let people know that, hey, we're here. This is a vibrant church. Even though we're not a large church, we can make a difference. And our responsibility is every time they walk in the door, whether they be that tall or six foot tall, that they see Jesus in each one of us. It's not about me. It's not even about you. It's all about Him. If we'll begin to lift up Jesus, it'll make a difference. I've said this a hundred times, and I'll continue to say it until you finally run me off one day. The easiest thing on the face of the earth to do should be to build a church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said it very plainly. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. We don't have to do it. If I'm expecting to draw people because of me, you're out of luck. hate to say the same thing, but if I'm expecting you all to draw them, we're out of luck too. There's only one way to build a church of Jesus Christ. That's lift up Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Are we doing it the way we want to? How do we override complacency? How do we maintain spiritual intensity, excitement that's born out of a relationship with God where you know God works in my life? You've seen Him work. You've experienced it. You know when you get in a situation, God's always there to come to your help. When Apostle, Apostle Paul reached the end, toward the end of his life, he testified that he was, Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14, forgetting the past and pressing on. And the words press on are words that are used for a sports team. They speak of an athlete who's at the end of a football game. They're wore out. They're tired. They're just about to drop from exhaustion. And yet... They've got the ball, and they're marching down the field to score the winning goal, perhaps. And they reach down inside of themselves to pull something extra, to make that block, to make that tackle, to whatever situation it may be in, to catch that ball, to run a little harder and faster, to dodge a little bit. It means reaching down inside of us for something that's there. I can imagine, of course, I've never been there, but all of you soldiers know exactly what that is. Probably at times in your life you had to reach down for something 
a little deeper. And you were able to pull it out and accomplish whatever it was. I don't know. I've never been in the military. I can't acquaint with it. But I know in sports it's a way. I can imagine in the military it would be much more powerful. How do you come down to the end still pressing on to victory? In Psalms, David, uh, in Psalms, David sang about four kinds of places necessary if you, if you were to encounter streams of mercy in the desert. Number one, he said there's a sacred place. A sacred place. Look at verses 2 and 3 of that passage we read, if you still have it open. I meant to tell you to leave it open just in case. But uh, Psalms chapter 63, uh, yeah, Psalms chapter 63, verses 2 and 3. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. There are no buildings. There were no temples in the desert. But notice what old David did. He didn't have to go into the temple, the sanctuary. He went into his mind and remembered what it was like to be in the temple, in the sanctuary. And he began to think back to perhaps 5, 10, 15, 20 years earlier when he had such of a close relationship with God and how God began to move in his life and carry him through situations. He went to the sanctuary, even though it was in his mind, the, emphasize of the, the emphasis of the sacred place was on the majesty, the power, the glory, the love of God, not necessarily on sitting in a pew. It was about being there and feeling the presence of God all around. In other words, that sanctuary is available to every one of us anytime we need it. You may be in a desert this morning. You may be in a place where you're just discouraged. Maybe you, your job's hard. I mean, you're just barely getting by, and just it just seems like everything's piled up on it. That's a desert for you. It may be something totally different for me, but that's the desert for you in your life right now. And what David is saying, go back to when you used to praise and worship. There was meaning in it. There was something there. And you remember those times when you'd feel Leave feeling exhilarated and ready to go do something for God. You just couldn't wait to run into somebody at Walmart or H-E-B or wherever they're at and share with them what had happened in your church service that morning. The emphasis on the sacred place was on, again, the majesty, the power, the glory, and the love of God. It's there that you remove your eyes from human things that occupy your time and set your heart on God. Where is your sanctuary? What do you do for sanctuary? Now, I enjoy, this is just me, so you, I, you don't have to do it this way, but I just enjoy getting up about 4 o'clock in the morning, and that's my quiet time. The dog hadn't even woke up yet. Judy's not awake yet, so I can just, I can just enjoy. And in my mind, I'm in my sanctuary. That doesn't work for everybody. I understand that. But that's what works for me. I can read my Bible and just think on it a little bit. See, your sanctuary could be anywhere you want it to be. Because it doesn't have to be here. It can be what you remember. Your sanctuary in your mind. You don't exit the desert by doing things for God. You exit the th desert by setting your heart on God in sacred places. 
in his mind, once again, David visited the sanctuary. He had been overwhelmed by, pu- by human power greater than his own. What's going on in my life? Why has all this happened to me? Why is everybody picking on me? Isn't that what we ask over and over? Why are they picking on me all of a sudden? What did I do to deserve this? He had been overwhelmed by the pu- human, human power greater than his own. What do you do when you, an adversary is stronger than you are? What do you do when you're defeated and frustrated? You're discouraged? Suppose someone else lands that job that you wanted so badly and you didn't get it. What do you do in those times? Go to the sacred place. And you turn your eyes upon God and there's majesty and glory. That's the key to it. Go to that sanctuary and, Lord, it's just me and you now. Let's talk a little bit. What have I lost? What have I done? How do I get back on track? And God will begin to guide you, whatever it is. Man has always had a sacred place. People claim they can worship without going to church. And you know something? That's exactly true. Did you know you don't have to go to church to worship? You know the only problem is they don't. I've talked to a lot of people that have said that. And you start asking them questions. They don't worship. They just use that excuse. There's no worship there. That's not saying you can't do it. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You don't have to come to church to worship. In fact, some of my best worship is done at 4 o'clock in the morning when I'm talking to God. That's my worship. That's when I say, God, straighten out this mess I've made again. Get me back on track. Man has always had a sacred place. The sacred place is untainted by distraction. Desperately, we need a sacred place. We don't understand in America what it really means to reverence a sanctuary. Now, I've never, let me clarify this real quick. I've never been to South Korea I don't know anybody. Well, I do know some people from South Korea now because I'm at this church. There's several. But it's I've met some. But I don't know anything about the way they worship. But I was told recently, and I'm telling this, so I don't know this to be true. You can correct me if I'm wrong. If you were to go to go someplace like South Korea, and you would find that going to a church, that I'm told that every individual that enters a sanctuary will sit down and bow his head. Maybe just like that. I don't know how it's done, but that they're reverent about walking into the, uh, the sanctuary. They would go in and bow and pray a short prayer before they walk in the doors of the sanctuary. If a person enters in the middle of a sermon, he bows his head and prays. In most of the churches, the music leaders, the ministers come to the platform. They remove their shoes, and those on the platform will kneel by their chairs and pray. In public view. Now, I don't, again, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I was told that, so I'm running with it. It sounds like something I'd like it to be true anyway. Can you imagine what this church right here would be different if we moved this, our altar? Of course, we can't move our steps out there, but if we moved our outside the church, and that way, before you came into the service, each person would have to get on their knees and pray before they walked in. Can you imagine the difference that would make? 
But see, we in America have become pretty arrogant. We just take things for granted. We don't need those little things. But yes, the little things that we lose, it causes the biggest damage in our lives. If we're not careful, we'll become so arrogant that we're of no use anymore to God. And I'm afraid that's where America is going rapidly. To us in America, nothing seems sacred. We're all sufficient. We're arrogant. We're self-righteous people a lot of times. We've lost track of a sacred place to set apart for us to somehow touch God. And we've become just the people that come together. Oh, we go to worship service. Well, what'd you get out of it? Well, nothing, but I went to worship service. We all are like that a little bit. When we begin to get worn out, fatigued, tired, lonely, we need a place to get along with God. And David calls that his sanctuary out in the middle of the desert. Sooner or later, every one of us, if you're working in the church for any kind of ministry, doing anything, we get tired. Sometimes we even get betrayed. Did you know what happened? that happens in Baptist churches? Sometimes people will betray you. It happens, folks. Sometimes, hold your breath on this one, somebody's going to hurt our feelings. And it hurts. It hurts a lot. And at those times, that's when we need to go to our sanctuary. It may be this building right here. But it can also be your sofa at the home. It can be any place where you get along with God for just a little bit of time and begin to talk to Him. Sooner or later, every one of us is going to be that place. We must locate that sacred place where we can focus our attention on God. In verse 2, we read these, the, the passage we just read, uh, Psalm 63. I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. That's the reason he got on his face before God is he wanted to see God's power in his life again because your loving kindness is better than life. There's a second kind of place he mentions real quick, a secluded place. Look at verses 6 and 7. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. The secret place, the secluded place. Most of us are leery of that place there. We want people around us busily, act, busy activity going around us all the time. That's what we want. Everything that shows we're busy doing God's work if people are all around us. No, it doesn't. It shows a bunch of busy people running around. To be isolated along with God is somehow almost frightening to us. But David declared that we needed a secluded place. When he was in that secluded place, he meditated upon God. Many of us use that secret place to refuel our bitterness. We get along, we get quiet, and we start thinking of the problems that I have with so-and-so over here. I'm mad at this person. I didn't like what he said to me the other day. I didn't like the way she said it. I didn't, all these little things. And that becomes dominant in our thoughts. That's not what David did. David got before God and says, Lord, change me. Make it a place of renewal. To David, it was a place of renewal. There he reflected upon the times God had helped him in the past. When he stood against Goliath, he heard God promise, I will be your help. When he fought the lion and the bear, he heard God console him, I will be your help. As he lay on his bed in the dark seasons, 
of his life right now, he heard the Lord whisper as he did to Joshua, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Have you heard those words lately? Maybe you need to go to that secluded place, that secret place. The third kind place, real quick, he mentions, is a safe place. Look at verse 7. Because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. As David thought about that safe place of protection where he could experience a fresh relationship with God, he thought about the wings of a bird. Now, I've never spent much time out in the desert, so I'm just assuming this. But I would assume that you look up a lot of times in the desert and you can see birds flying over. Maybe buzzards, but they're nonetheless birds. They're flying up there and they're just so majestic as they fly in the heavens, just swooping down and you know, ready to catch a little field rat as it runs across the field or whatever it may be and just swing down to pick it up to have something to eat that day. What do birds give us an impression of? Majesty, even power. But yet, the Bible says things about wings that several times in the course of the Bible. He mentions wings. One of my favorite verses is verse 7 of this passage. Because you've been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice, David said. Did you catch that? Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings, underneath the wings, I will rejoice, David said. You see, he was not talking about his problems anymore. He had turned his focus upon God and how God had helped him time and time and time again in his life. And he comes to the realization, God didn't move, I did. And he comes back to that place. Because you have been in my you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings, underneath his wings, I will rejoice. As David thought about a safe place of protection where he could experience a fresh relationship with God, he thought about the wings of a bird. To restore his spiritual passion, he considered the wings of a bird. In the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. In other words, with God's covering and protection over him, I can rejoice. Because I know God's going to see me through whatever I'm in, whatever it is. Wings are often symbols of God. There are several basic facts that stand out in biblical references to the wings of God. One is warmth. The wings keep us warm. Of course, overall is protection. Listen to, uh, to Jesus' words in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven: How often I wanted to gather you, my, your, your children together, even as a hen gathered her chicks under her wings. What is that a picture of? Of mama taking care of the little ones. Of God taking care of us. God hadn't moved, folks. We have. We're the ones that lost the exuberance, the excitement to worship God. Why does she gather her wings? For warmth, for protection. Wings refer to warmth and refuge. We all need a safe place of protection, trust and refuge. A place where we can rejoice as David did. Upon the wings of the wind, the, wind, the birds are free to soar and to sing. And we're underneath the wings of God to sing in our hearts and souls. The fourth place that David refers to 
He continues, verse 8, My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. The only secure place in an insecure world is in the hand of God. You know, we hear so much chaos going on. Just a few weeks ago, what, 58 people were shot to death in Las Vegas. I mean, it's just so commonplace to hear it anymore. It just, I mean, it's everywhere. What's going on in our world? It's just got so crazy. Are you afraid to go out in the world anymore? But God says, you're under my wings. You're under the hand of God. Does that mean it's going to keep you from all harm? Absolutely not. But it means God got, got you regardless of, what, regardless of what happens. A secure place. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Remember the context of this psalm. David experienced humiliating defeat. He had just come through probably the worst experience in his life. I mean, he was just a defeated person. This is the king, remember. His self-esteem had taken a hard hit undoubtedly. But he declared, Thy right hand upholds, secures me. The hand of God, particularly the right hand, is found repeatedly in Scripture. This expression has many basic connotations to us. It speaks of safety. It speaks of conviction. It speaks of under the hand of God. We're, we find the awareness of our needs and it, of, of sustenance, of judgment, of strength, of disclosure. For under the right hand of God, we learn and hear the will of God. It speaks of possession because we belong to God. Goodness, creation, works, deliverance from God. That's what that represents. And lastly, there's a place of, of confidence. Confidence is not a psychological attitude we work up on a basis of self-assurance. Well, I'll just tell myself to get over this and I'll be better. I'll be a better Christian if I just tell myself to. That's not how it works. I mean, that may work in psychology. But it takes more than that to overcome the world, folks. And Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And he tells us we can do the same. It's a sense of God's supernatural presence in our lives. Do you know that God's with you every day? I mean, really know it. Don't raise your hands. But I mean, do you really, do you just know that God's with me every day of my life? You just feel it when you get up. You feel it when you out running around. You feel it when you're standing in line at Walmart fixing to say some things you're not supposed to say. Do you feel that then? Because when the frustrations come, it's usually when we're weakest. Our mouth speaks before our brain kicks in gear. I don't know if y'all have that problem, but I, I have it quite a bit. My mouth speaks so many things. I read a deal on Facebook just the other day. I believe it was just Thursday something. Probably one of y'all sent it to me. It said, uh, you, know, you know that little thing in your brain that tells you not to say things, certain things? Then the little saying below says, I don't have one of those. <laughs> I'm afraid that's how a lot of us are. <laughs> Confidence. It's the sense of God's supernatural presence in our lives holding us. Somehow in the desert, that desert place that, that David's talking about, found himself secure in the hands of God himself. He's out in the middle of wilderness. But yet he felt the secureness of God wrapping him around his arms. 
offering him tremendous inner strength and direction. We've mastered the art of outward expressions. You know, we've, we've, we've become good at, as Baptists. That's all I can talk about. That's all I've ever been. But, you know, we can walk into a building. I remember when the first church was ever at. We lived about 15 miles away from and I mean, this is out in the country. And we had to drive through these oil fields and everything else to get to the place, about 15 miles away. And, boy, we'd rush around. And we'd just, I mean, we had two small kids at the time, and Judy'd get them ready. We'd just get them in the truck. Let's go. Let's get in the car. Let's get over there. We'd pull up the church. And man, we'd been fussing and fighting the whole way. We'd walk in the door. Hi, how y'all doing? Isn't it a great day? It had been total chaos for the last two hours. Trying to get two boys ready, get them in the car, get Mama in there, all the things we got to take with us. And yet we wanted everybody to think we were doing great. You know what a lot of Christians do? They'll walk in the church, and if you look at them, you think, man, they've got it all together. But a lot of us are falling apart on the inside. But we're too proud to even say it. We've all got problems, folks, every one of us. I don't care what age, what security, what income, it doesn't matter. We've all got problems. But yet we come together, and we don't want people to see that because that shows I'm a weak Christian. No, it doesn't. It shows you're human, and you still need God in your life. Why do we worry so much about things like that? David was in the desert, the king, the spiritual political leader of a nation, but he confessed, the only place I found security was in the strong hand of God. His testing was a life and death struggle. In that desert, he cried out, I don't want to die. Who said those words? Jesus did. Jesus. Think about at the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion. The Bible says that he wanted his closest friends to go and pray with him, to be watching for him. You know what they did? They fell asleep. Jesus went and cried blood drops. He was so anguished about what was going to happen. And I believe with all my heart, he said, Father, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to endure the shame. I don't want to endure the hardship. I believe he said that. But then he also said, But Father, not my will be done, but yours. You see, Jesus anguished too. He was in his desert place at that garden that night. He was crying. He was weeping. It hurt. He knew it was not going to be a fun experience, if you will. He cried before the Father. But yet he still did the will of God. Does that describe us? Let's close this out real quick. The ultimate victory of Calvary was won in that desert that Jesus had at the Garden of Gethsemane. All he would have had to say is, no, I don't want to do it. And God would have stopped it. And all would have happened. You and I wouldn't be here. We may be here, but we'd be destined for hell. Each one of us. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross. He anguished, the Bible says. He struggled with it. He prayed hard. I mean, blood drops of sweat was dropping off his forehead he didn't want to go to the cross but he did want to do god's will 
You see, you don't have to yield when you're in anguish. We've got a pretty good example. Jesus is a pretty good example for us. When you're down and out, when you're discouraged, when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're just worn out, just remember, Jesus did the same thing, but he did the Father's will. Are you doing that this morning? How do we put excitement back into our lives? How do we put excitement back into our church? How do we have that fervor that we used to have? What can we do to reach out to these people outside and fill some of these empty chairs? I believe we've got to get away in a secret place, each one of us. God, here I am. What do I need to do? Are you willing to do that? Let's stand together. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this time you've given us. As we come to close this service, Lord, we just ask that you'd be with us in a special way. Lord, you know the needs of every man and woman that's in this room today. And, Lord, we just ask that if there be anybody here that does not know you as a personal Savior, Lord, that's the greatest decision they'll ever make. They can be like David, Lord, and then they will, they will know the safety and the comfort and the confidence that he gives. But Lord, that's the greatest decision anyone could ever make. Lord, maybe there's somebody here today that's looking for a church home. And, Lord, you've impressed upon them this is the place you want them to serve. Lord, maybe there's just some here that just need to bow at these steps and say, I just need to find that desert place in my life that I can go and just talk and fellowship with God for a little bit. Because I miss that. I miss what I used to have. Whatever the need is, we're not going to tarry long. I don't believe in having a long service. But let's have a verse or two. If this verse is for you, would you step out? This morning, for whatever reason, I'll be here. Our deacons will be there. You can meet each one of them. They'll be glad to talk to you, whatever it is. But don't leave this building without Jesus. All these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.